0: Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome to this November episode of Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and Buildings of Air is, of course, the show where we talk about architecture and left politics sometimes more of one and less of the other we're starting a couple minutes late today but not too bad thanks producer jamie for uh hustling in and getting us uh underway um the the man the man works so hard uh we can cut him some slack um but i'm i'm excited for the show today uh you know we are off for september on account of labor day um And uh, we had to kind of postpone this segment. It was was originally going to be a back-to-school segment. And all of a sudden, we're like halfway through the semester. Um, But we're going to talk about architectural education today um, with uh, three wonderful studio professors from the big Chicago-area schools, uh, Leslie Johnson, Sarah Dunn, no relation, (laughs) and Ellen Grimes. Maybe some relation very distantly. I don't know. Um, But then then in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about TIF districts with David Merriman, uh, a researcher at UIC, um, who just released a, a really, really interesting report on, on TIFs. Um, and then after that, uh, we'll be answering your listener questions in our mailbag segment. Um, Anne, Louie, and Craig Reschke of Future Firm, our regular mailbag correspondents, couldn't make it this month, um, but we've got some excellent ringers. Uh, Nick and Emily, who've done it before and we will do it again. And uh, so there's still time. If you've got questions about buildings, send them in. You can tweet at the show at on Air, B-L-D-G-S on air. Um, without further ado, how are you all doing?
2: Happy to be here. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thanks for uh, bearing with us, both in the September postponement and uh, a slightly rocky start uh, to this episode. Um, but, but we're here, we're, we, and we've still got plenty of time to chat. Um, m- maybe you guys can can introduce yourselves, and, and a couple of you are, are Leslie. You've been on the show before, yes. and uh, Sarah, you've also been on the show before, but in in in, in a long lost episode. And so, you, <laughs> so listeners to the podcast feed might notice that the podcast feed begins with episode two of Buildings on Air. Yeah. Because episode one was our pilot episode that went out live over FM radio, but the the recording has has vanished in the thin air. So we don't. So it's not on the conspiracy. podcast feed. Building yeah. a legend of <laughs> yeah. buildings on air. That's, there that's right. There. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so it's it's a mysterious episode. Um, anyway, L- Leslie, why don't you why don't you kick off with the intros? Uh,
3: Leslie Johnson. I'm a Architect designer, um, but a faculty member at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Yeah. I don't know Kiefer when you invited us. You said <laughs> you don't have to represent the entirety of your institution. No, and y- I think that's maybe something to say is that you know I have a perspective, but of course I have faculty yeah. members who have different perspectives. So totally, yeah. and
1: and I, I I thought about this as getting like a, a representative sampling of yeah. like people who were sort of teaching in 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 different contexts but yeah you guys are here just as awesome studio instructors who happen to be at these places <laughs> uh to be clear so sp- speak freely uh, as freely as you as you want
4: to and I don't know uh, if it, with if that it's proviso relevant, put out there
3: yeah i don't know if it's it's relevant for a conversation about architectural education but yeah my undergraduate degree is also from iit but my graduate degree is from the bartlett school of architecture yeah. at ucl which was like at the time and still a little bit kind of the polar opposite of 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 that that experience. So, uh, uh, you know, my thinking about education comes from that, too, of course. Yeah,
4: yeah.
5: Um, uh, I'm Sarah Dunn, and um, I teach at University of Illinois at Chicago in the School of Architecture. I'm a professor there, and I also um, have a firm with my husband down the street from the studio here called Urban Lab. Yeah, And we do architecture and urban design. Yeah,
1: it still blows my mind that there's an architecture office closer to the studio than mine. (laughs) Because I'm like one block away. (laughs) (laughs) You're half a block away.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Ellen Grimes. Um, Right now I'm an associate professor at um, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in the awkwardly named department known as AIADO. (laughs) architecture interior architecture and designed objects um we've tried to get rid of that name many times and yeah so far have not succeeded <laughs> yeah
1: it's a mouthful well thanks so much for for being here and um, i'm i'm excited to have uh you guys here in particular um s- since i i've sort of like had a lot of time a chance to talk with you guys I've been on your reviews you've been on my reviews um I don't think I've ever been on one of your reviews, or you've been on one of my reviews, Sarah. Have you ever but been to a UIC? Review? I've never been to a UIC review, so you have the oh. you have the the virtue of being one of the only people I know at UIC. <laughs> but I know you as a practitioner, um, so I can I can imagine. Um, but yeah, I, I, mostly I wanted to talk, especially like I'm, a, it's, it's kind of selfish, like a lot of the show is like me, like pursuing like this, my curiosities, like in a public forum, which is a, a, a luxury that um, I, I don't take for granted at all. But I, I've sort of been teaching for three or four years now. And so, and I'm, I'm sort of just generally very curious about... Um, Architectural education because it's one of the things that I do, but also sort of like what the kind of tensions are in this kind of moment that I don't necessarily see because I haven't been doing it for a long time, right? Um, and so that that's kind of one of the reasons why I, I wanted to ha- have, have you all on the show is because I'm I'm just I'm just sort of curious like how you appraise architectural education right now, like what are, what's different about the students, like what are the unique challenges of this kind of like this contemporary moment, this contemporary sort of political moment, um, that, that, that you face in the studio and that, that, that you're trying to work through even. Um, so, you know, that's kind of become the MO of the show since episode one is I usually set the table with like a really huge unfair question, um, (laughs) and, and just have smart people around and, and, and we kind of, we kind of chew on it. So, um, that's the unfair question. And, um, yeah, cur- curious what you guys think. You know,
2: well, I think that the, you know, there, there's a lot of dimensions to that question, yeah. right? There are the, the kind of, um, pragmatic administrative issues, that actually have a profound effect day to day in the classroom, and in curricula. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, there's the ever-present question of um, how does education situate itself in relationship to practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think though. If I have to ask myself, like, what are the two big things that have changed? You know, I started architecture school as an old lady in 1990 and um, I had been in other graduate programs before that and had worked, and I found it, you know, curiously a kind of um, antique and conservative situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I find it even kind of more sort of distinctive... And um, what I worry about is that the good sort of distinctiveness, the way in which it differs from, let's say, other professional types of education and um, other forms of, you know, um, uh, research and um, sort of speculative practices in academic settings. Like some of those things seem at risk of being lost. Yeah um and others seem at risk of just being devalued mm. you know not so like like in the 90s i think most academic institutions and IITs are like a really curious example of that uh had an academic project yeah whether it was theoretical or in the case of IIT the sort of um curatorship of a of a 1950s curriculum wrestling
3: with a legacy as it were yeah
2: <laughs> and and you know UIC had its position as the kind of um, cornerstone of postmodernism mm-hmm. in Chicago which was historically I think a really important one um, I don't think you see um, at least from my perspective as distinct a kind of positioning um, particularly with IIT and SIC, hmm. um, in relationship to the sort of larger um, discipline and practice of architecture. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. do Do you guys do you guys feel that too? Like, you know, I know there's kind of at IIT, like you said, there's this kind of ghost of 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 Mies that everyone has to grapple with. So there's sort of the echo echoes of that, and and. Uh, but yeah, that 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 has some resonance with my, my sort of experience. I'm curious what you guys think.
3: I mean, you know, just specifically with IIT, I think, you know, some schools have uh, uh, the flexibility to really define themselves based on the current faculty situation or era. And we always have this kind of, antiquities collection we have to deal with, both literally and, and, you know, they're kind of walking around the building.
4: And I I mean that with, like, great respect, but also
3: insofar as I think what it does, and maybe I shouldn't be so critical of my own institution, but I'm an old hat at it, so I think I'm going to do it, which is that I think oftentimes we feel the conversation is entirely internal, and I think that's one of the strange things about IIT. I mean, in in graduate school, I was put in this architectural pedagogical milieu where it didn't matter that I was a student at the Bartlett. I also studied with and went to lectures with students at the AA and Goldsmiths and all these other institutions. Mm. You were just a student of architecture. You just happened to have a studio in a certain building and a certain tutor um, but the idea that it's this kind of insular place where I often believe, I think most many IIT faculty probably don't go to UIC very often at all, whether for a show or for a review and things yeah. like that. So I think it it's made it so that the conversation tends to be quite internal. You know, mm-hmm. what is our legacy? What is our current history? What's our future history, as it might be? Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's actually really an interesting conversation, but I think uh, maybe to Ellen's point that you know, being part of a larger discipline uh, is critical to positioning yourself as a school of architect- architecture. I think where one of those countervailing forces of administration that you brought up about the kind of bureaucracy of an institution, you know, a school like like UIC, which just by dollar amount is more affordable to a student who mm-hmm. wants to study architecture as a public institution, you know, IIT as a as a as the entire university, not just the College of Architecture, is grappling with, you know, how do we maintain a certain percentage of students from the state versus out of state? Because yeah. it still matters to us as well. Um, we've had a huge blow in this last year with the change in international student, mm. uh, uh, especially our graduate program has really uh, been very hard hit. It's, ha- it's amazing how dramatic that's happened. Within four years, we went from like predominantly international students in our graduate program to this year I'm running the first year Graduate studio, and I've got one student from another country, wow. and that mm-hmm. one student is from really? Brazil, yeah. not from where you would expect.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, and I think that that's quite telling about, you know, we can't ignore these outside forces. And I think it's interesting how there's a kind of move to try and make our Our curricula more distinctive, which tends to be this kind of how do we close it down, right? Mm. The idea that pluralism is difficult to understand, Mm -hmm. and so I think there's a notion that maybe a core idea is about smallness uh, sometimes, and I I I actually think it does reflect a kind of larger conversation in culture,
4: yeah,
3: uh, beyond even architecture. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting moment. I, I don't think it's fully formed. It's a kind of we used to get a magazine at home called Current History, and I kind of feel like that's what I'm going <laughs> yeah. through right now. Well, at the same time, dealing with the day to day of you know how do you teach students of architecture to think about the built environment, you know? Right. So not to hug the mic here. So no, no, I, I think
1: it's really interesting because you you would expect that kind of condition of, of a, a sort of like having a distinct project to be something that kind of. I don't know. Gets associated with like a, a like a monk, like sort of like being in the cloister. But but I really appreciate what you're saying is that like actually it's the it's the total opposite that like you have to engage in the world yeah. to have a kind of project, right? Um, um, which I think is, is really easy for for everyone to kind of lose sight. I of. think
3: that's particularly difficult for architecture because you know, my husband went to the Cooper Union and it's this kind of monastic, you know, enterprise in the middle of a major bustling city yeah. and. You know, I think that kind of history of the monastery that the university has is very difficult for architecture. Yeah. I mean, we're really talking about the current issues of the built environment. Yeah. You know, how do you separate from that? Totally. It's, it can be difficult.
4: Yeah.
5: Yeah, at UIC, we we uh, we do separate ourselves. <laughs> uh, I think, I think for us, we have a distinct uh, project or set of projects within the school, and. That's not our problem. Uh, what maybe what the issues we face are? Mm. Um, it's it's interesting to hear the IIT side of it of the kind of opposite uh, private school with tuition issues. We have the public school with lack of funding issues, mm. which uh, creates its own set of problems. Of you know, very, we're very scrappy. You know, roof <laughs> leaks. And, uh, you Tape everything together, but. The mood inside the school is really good, and uh, and I love teaching there, actually. Um, but I think, in a way, maybe we're trying to maintain uh, that kind of traditional or removed, or mon- not, qu- I wouldn't say monastic, but mm. to allow students to come to architecture through the discipline of architecture, still understanding the issues that surround us in the world, but without having to be super reactive to them, but kind of get uh, the language of architecture under control first, and then go out into the world armed with being able to design and to think uh, through design uh, as a way to to prepare students for what's out there right now. Yeah.
2: You know, I think UIC
5: has the distinct
2: role, you know, it has the distinction of articulating a disciplinary project. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, not everybody sort of toes the line in quite the same way, but it is an active part. Mm -hmm. You know, articulating that disciplinary project is an active part of the pedagogy and shapes the curriculum. You know, I I come from a school that supposedly is anti-disciplinary, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs>
1: anti-disciplinary or interdisciplinary <laughs> well i would say <laughs> there are
2: lots of ways to practice interdisciplinary uh, yeah. <laughs> and 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 the default is anti-disciplinary um yeah and i think that's what happened has that that's the the trauma that um i think most people encounter when they go to teach at seic yeah is um uh curriculum and a kind of teaching format that um, situates itself outside of the discipline's traditional practices. Um, And it has not yet prompted a way of thinking about the discipline through interdisciplinarity, which I actually think is possible. And that's the big... You know, that's that's the sort of big lost promise mm-hmm. of um the place where I teach. Mm. And I think it stands like um uh the the idea of the disciplinary project mm. I- is something that um you know, IIT seem, I have taught in all the, all these places. I, know, yeah, and I think that's read maybe all of out. Yeah, right. Yeah, we yeah. all
3: kind of know that, but we should say that. The
2: IIT disciplinary project is a historical one, right? Yeah. So,
3: I don't uh, think that's entirely true. Okay. I think that, if I may, I mean, I, I think that we have our tenured faculty think it is. Um, but they're not the entirety of the faculty. Um, And not all of them do. And this is actually the conversation we're kind of having right now, which, see, I think what's interesting about that is that I wish the students were more interested in having that conversation. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I don't think they want to. I think they kind of think, like, can you just solve this, and so I know what classes to take. Well, I
2: think, you know, from their point of view, and I'm completely sympathetic about it, is... um, you know, I went to an expensive private school when I was an undergraduate, but I had no sense of what it was costing, <laughs> <laughs> right? And part of it was because I was lucky. I actually, you know, was was there at a time when federal loans and government grants exactly. covered so much yeah. of my bill that I didn't really have to think about it. And None of the students we teach are in that situation no. anymore. Yeah. Even, you know, as cheap as UIC is, you know, you, so many of your students are DACA, first-time college, um, yeah. first-generation college yeah. students, and, you know, in other situations. We have situations.
3: the same demographic because it's mostly scholarship. I mean, that's really the the university's model that yeah. makes it difficult. It's a kind of tuition model versus an endowment model but we give a lot of scholarships and so we have a very similar demographic but it it yeah I think I think it's not abstract for them. It, I think they don't know what the numbers are, but it's abstractly large. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, So the <laughs> fear is there, even if it's not backed up by some specific, you know, how much do I need to earn when I yeah. graduate kind of thing. But also, go ahead. But if I may, I think the the part that's difficult about that is that it. it I think it robs them of the really important luxury of time that, that university a uh, university education is supposed to be. That you have this four years, five years, six years, whatever it may mm-hmm. add, add up to be. That there's a kind of slowness that you need during that time, particularly yeah. for something like architecture, which is wide ranging and it's it's reached and yet also has specific disciplinary skills that you need to learn. Um, you know, one of them being sort of how to learn those skills because that's really the thing you take yeah, with you totally. later. Um, you know, what we might think of as visual acuity or those sorts yeah. of things. But I think they they don't get the slowness anymore, and they're afraid to take time to do something. Yeah. Which which is our whole discipline is to, yeah, take, to time take time to do something. <laughs> yeah, you only or to do it many times right. to get it to, you know get it right or, or to make it better. Yeah, you know?
1: yeah, and and it's hard like because I you know I, I can totally appreciate the kind of pressures right like, because um, you know I, I finished grad school in in 2015 and when I finished grad school you know I had like like 500 bucks in my bank account and like no job prospects and like you know i gradu- i did really well in school too and i was like you know sitting there and i was <laughs> looking at the world and i was like man like maybe i should have been like learning revit instead of like caring as much as i did about history and theory because all of the like <laughs> all of the students who like really buckled down who did like crap in studio but you know were really focused on like get, getting a job and like being on that grind like did like did really well and like the, i you know like they're they're out there working for well did really well by what metric, I guess right I was just but like say. But, but like but you know they they have comfortable, secure jobs, which when you know you have these kinds of abstractly large numbers hanging over your head is is a real material concern, and so you know and, and, and I guess one of the the ways that I think that manifests like uh, in on in the, in, in the kind of level of the faculty. Is I think that there's always this kind of debate between the sort of like idealists and and, and the kind of pragmatists, right? right? And like, uh, in in the sense that I think you do have a lot of a lot of faculty who who are. Maybe overly concerned with employability, um, but but also like you know it's a really tricky thing to manage because because how could you not be, <laughs> right? Like how how could you not be on some level? And and that balancing act is is a really difficult thing to strike um, between those kind of like concrete skills that will help students get a job to like pay their student loan and and uh, uh, you know really engaging them deeply in in the kind of in the kind of discipline. Um, I think it, I think it's it's just it's it's tough. It's tough, um, and I and I'm not exactly sure what to do about it. Because um, because in many ways it's a kind of structural problem, right? It's not like a an ideological problem.
5: Hmm. I think are we in our faculty at UIC, I don't think we have uh, pragmatic versus idealistic. I think we have prag- pragmatic idealists <laughs> and. Our thought is that we will teach them, uh, we will teach them within the discipline of architecture Um. and then they will go out and be in the profession of architecture. Mm. And that's the, uh, we try to keep those two separate within the school. So the school is about the discipline of architecture and then many of the students get side jobs as they get more and more advanced mm-hmm. in their career and also because they, they just have to because they have to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, but we hope, we strive to provide them with the skills that mean that they can get a job even after going through our kind of nutty curriculum. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they do get jobs, yeah. actually. Uh, and I think the, the, often the fact of getting a job or not getting a job Uh, is, as you say, completely outside of uh, the control of of no matter what you teach because if the economy is good, then there are jobs. And if the economy is what we went through in 2007 and 8 and 9, we lose a whole generation of, of architects because there literally are no jobs no matter what skills you have. Which is interesting because I actually think that an
3: architectural education is something, you know, I wish we, as architecture professors, talked about it as more of a kind of amazingly broad, not general education, but it has application to so many different Mm -hmm. ways of being in the world. Some of them earn you money. Some of them are just about how you vote. Some of them are about how you write um, or how you think. And I feel like the... You know, like the world I, as I saw the world before I went to architecture school and the world I, after architecture school, I, I have a difficult time reconciling those two mm. perspectives. And I feel like I could do many things with the education I had. Mm. And I know for a fact that my students will do many things with the education they're getting. Some of them will go on to practice architecture in a yeah. maybe more traditional way that we expect. Um, and oftentimes, I think those. Those are the students that take the Revit classes and such. They know they want a kind of particular professional track, right? And they pursue that, and they're quite happy to pursue that. Yeah. You know, if I make you for, I would say you you're you have a more open set of questions in the world. Yeah. And now you you practice as an architect, not in that you're making buildings, but that you ask of the world questions about yeah. its physical re- its its material resources. Its Uh, logics and organizations. And I feel like that has application well beyond, uh, you know, internship and licensure and such. And so I think that the students, I know that the students who, who care to, to pursue that will, will get there because they have to pay the bills. (laughs) They may also do that during the day and do something else at night, you know, and, or on the weekends. And I think that you know, maybe it's just a particularly American thing that like your job is your, your your sum total of your identity, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And it's, you know, it's just not always the case. But I know that's a very difficult argument to make to someone who's thinking about that. Yeah. Five years down the line in the middle of it. Yeah. You know, I, I try to say to the students that, I had a client once that said, if you want to be a really good generalist, you should specialize, specialize, specialize. You know, like you should just get really good at what you're doing right at the moment. Yeah, Know everything you can about it. And I f- sort of feel like that's, that's the part that I wish my students could recover, is that they could just care about that particular day, that particular week, that mm. particular semester, and that if they push that, and then the other things will come. Yeah. And I don't mean like if you build it, they will come, but <laughs> then they appreciate the discipline. Yeah. Maybe this is to Sarah's point about saying, being part of the discipline of architecture will lead you into the profession of architecture. Yeah. You'll have that as a really strong yeah. perspective. Yeah. yeah, I
2: guess one thing that I sort of hope for is that um, this kind of period of indecisiveness in the part of um, some of the local schools Um, will, you know, lead to this understanding of the discipline actually as uh, a kind of broad embrace of many kind of knowledges. And, um, um, you know, Bob Sommel at UIC is fond of calling architecture the last liberal education. And I do think that's true. (laughs) Um, And, you know, for myself, sitting in an institution where... um, the idea of getting a job is 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 like understood as selling out. Um,
1: uh, yeah, <laughs>
2: and and my department in particular is seen as a naughty stepchild because <laughs> we have we have offices and jobs outside the institution. <laughs> uh, I particularly kind of value um, the way in which. The discipline promises uh, a means of, you know, expanding the profession, and um, I think that, you know, that that's sort of my hopeful note, my optimistic. Yeah, um, I was going to try to take us there. (laughs) I'm glad. Yeah. (laughs) That, um, (laughs) as indecisive as things feel right now, at least in places like SAIC, um, you know, for what architecture education will become I think the only way it will survive is if we can begin to you know articulate how the discipline has the potential to create new possibilities for the profession and I think it's happened in small ways
4: yeah
2: whether it's through I mean I think something that's really amazing that's happened at UIC in the past 10 years is this sort of reclaiming the drawing hmm as not only a speculative um, realm, but also as a way of allowing students that kind of disciplinary focus and and that that permits exploration and experimentation, but that uh, that also turns the page and becomes professional accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know I think, Kids from UIC get jobs in part because their portfolios are intense, <laughs> mm. and um, you know they stand out as people who have a command of drawing as a language of communication and experimentation. Um, and so, you know, with that as an as an example, I think that there are other ways in which um, a disciplinary focus, which is the practice of education, um, opens up possibilities for, let's say, for new models for participatory design, mm-hmm. you know, and other other, other ways of which are um, other modes of thinking for the organization of work, day to day, or even um, for the role of the architect, you know, as citizen, to use a word that some of my colleagues use a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, or as a uh, public intellectual or as like civic practitioner.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think I'm 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 always curious about this too because I think um, the, the the this this breadth, right? is almost like it, it can seem counter to a kind of disciplinary specificity, but I don't know that they always have I think what we're all saying here is that those things aren't aren't at odds necessarily. Um, but I'm also curious too about uh, this sort of, like the social obligations in, in, of, that we feel like in the profession, or at least I feel, right? I, I mean, I, th- I think that there is a kind of open question in the profession, uh, uh, about like what architects' responsibilities are um, to like do to do good in the world, and I and I think we all want to do good in the world. I think we get into this profession because we want to think critically about kind of material reality and contribute to like you know transforming that material reality in a way that's positive. Like I think you know we we all want to make nice things, right? <laughs> and and put, and put them out there. And I think um, uh, a lot of students. Have have that ambition. And and I, I I see more and more that ambition kind of being folded into uh, syllabi and curricula, and which is which is really fantastic, and I think it's one of the reasons why you know architecture lobby has been really successful is because students are kind of like hitting the ground of the profession and realizing like whoa actually like the profession is like service for like like for 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 developers and like luxury clients and it's not this kind of social thing like we, I don't have the opportunity to kind of build public buildings, but but I actually think that that like cognitive dissonance is like really really healthy um because it help it, I think it'll ultimately help us kind of transform the practice into a way it, it, like into into that kind of vision of something that's that's progressive um
2: I don't know I think as somebody who kind of grew up in the sort of social thoughty world of yeah. the university of chicago um it has always struck me as deeply bizarre yeah. That architects don't think that their work is "quote unquote" social, <laughs> or that uh. you know that that somehow um, uh, it, architecture is a, either a kind of um, a, an, an apolitical aesthetic practice, you know, sort of Peter Eisenman, or um, a technocratic, deterministic um, problem solving. Uh, enterprise, or a quote-unquote service profession, which is a term that seems <laughs> to be used by people who think of their social practice as, uh, want to distinguish their social practice in service to corporate America as something other than um, a social practice, right? Like, yeah. it's just like, yeah, well, your society is <laughs> McDonald's. Right. Um <laughs> <laughs> Like it it, it, it just I get cognitive dis- dissonance with like that question at a certain yeah. level, um, because you can't separate uh, buildings from social life or civic life. You sure. just can't. Right. Um, it, nobody's going off and building a cube in the middle of the desert without yeah. encountering some kind of social condition, and um, and so. I, I would say that yes, like it's great that things like architecture lobby exist. Yeah. But the way in which AIA and other sort of professional organizations like categorize the social as this like special little thing you do when you're done with your real work totally makes you know, like just seems bizarre to me. Yeah. Um, when when you bring your Drawings to permit—that's that's a civic and social exchange. Like you are participating in this complex network of political compromises, um, you know, cultural decisions, and we need to appreciate that I think more deeply. And I think it is the fault of the school of schools in a lot of instances. Where they begin to sort of treat architectural practices sort of belonging to these polite categories mm, mm-hmm. of well, I think commercial, I- academic. I mean, I'm nodding vigorously
3: as Ellen's talking, but yeah. I, I think the 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 most recent iteration of that is the conversation about is architecture a STEM discipline, <laughs> <laughs> which you know <laughs> I just I won't go into the nitty gritty of faculty meetings at my school, but. Oh, the, you know, recently the that. AIA said that Congress has said it is a STEM discipline, except they haven't actually done that. Yeah. It's a whole, like, bureaucratic thing that they've started the process of. But, of course, now all these people want to study architecture. And the, there's this one little fussy bit, which is that if you're an international student, you can stay longer if you have a STEM degree right. on your OPT, your um, – yeah. huh. I c- can't remember what it said – training. And you know, I remember always remember the T is training, get, which yeah. I think is ridiculous. You but get
2: a third more. You get an extra yeah. year. Yeah. You get yeah. three instead of two. Exactly.
3: And you know these these things have real life implications for yeah. our graduates. And and yet we're still talking about like is it a STEM discipline? And then <laughs> one of our you know like one of our faculty yeah. is like you just have to change the like designation with you know your local congru you know whatever. And it's like it's some categorization question. This is where it was headed. And I think you know I think of. Architecture as a way of seeing the world, and sometimes that means you act upon it, you you uh, uh, build something, I guess maybe in most direct way. Sometimes that means you discuss uh, uh, the question of your local street corner. Yeah, Um, it is a way of being in the world. I mean, I I agree with the idea that you know to be a citizen without thinking like an architect. I I have I have cognitive dissonance imagining how you could separate those things. But I understand why uh, schools of architecture, students of architecture for sure, want to put blinders on sometimes. Because I think if you're dealing with the question of, you know, the proportion of something, trying to also make sure am I you know, doing good in the world and what is doing good in the world mean and am I serving corporate America, <laughs> you know, it's like they can't handle it. Yeah. So it's a way of separating from that and I think faculty do the same. So that yeah, I always I'm always appalled when I sit on I sat on a review a few weeks ago, which was about a market hall and I was saying something about the building and stu- and another critic, they weren't a faculty member member, but they were practicing architect, said, Well, maybe you don't want to be too political about it. I'm like, <laughs> You're making a market a food hall. Like there's <laughs> there is nothing more <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> political than that. And I think that it feels like it's intended to be a protection, like somehow trying to grapple with those questions makes it too uh, we had a faculty member used to say you're just going to confuse them. It's like Hmm. I think that's life you know and but we have students who come in who think it's a service profession like I just need to sit and you know listen to all of the agents or parties and I will you know I am the divining rod that will make this you know work (laughs) uh, make sense you know as though they're not here to like as as though they're here to make the best market hall. No you're here to learn how to control a design process and yeah. that might include people and that might include understanding the ground you're standing on totally. you know, like but i think it's a way of again back to my point about feeling valid by your profession uh, validated in your life by your profession yeah. that somehow that makes it uh valid you know I, in some ways i as much as eisenman was a <laughs> you know he's a difficult old man but um, my husband was in his studio one year. It's a, quite a story. but Yeah, I didn't even go has, to Yale,
1: and I have an, an exactly, angry Eisenman story. But he story has
3: here. a position, right? And, yeah. and somehow <laughs> the idea that you have to carve your corner of that, and it's not just the AAA. I think even in architectural education people say, I'm just you know, concerned about whatever questions of form. I'm just concerned about questions of, you know, service, you know, I just hmm. don't know how you can separate those things. I think our profession is all of those things. But maybe it's just the the nature of specialization that you have to specialize to become a tenured faculty member. You have to have your specific expertise, yeah. you know. And so these are people who are tenured or hired because they have particular expertises, not because they have broad ideas about curriculum, you know, and yeah. Maybe I shouldn't be saying that. I'm sitting at a table. I think both of you are tenured. I am not, uh, and maybe that's a question for another conversation. But I do think that that is something that's shifted the way that we talk about architectural education. Yeah. You know, and we happen at IIT happen to have a tenured faculty who are predominantly about practice. Hmm. That is in many ways their full-time job, and their part-time job <laughs> is being a faculty member. And so the you know the conversation is colored by that. Yeah. I think they think that of that as a badge of honor, and I think. It's unfortunate that we've got too much weight in one part of the scale. Hmm. Um, but, you know, that's, a, that's maybe uh, to the question of what is the future history of our, our yeah. three schools. <laughs> I, I think those are questions of leadership. What is the value of architectural education mm-hmm. as a set of, you know, is it just a bunch of classes that teach you some skills and that means you can or cannot get a job? In which case I would be just so sad yeah. <laughs> to... Yeah. um but i do worry that when we have university administrators who only care about you know number of students and mm-hmm. tuition dollars and yeah. are we maxing out our you know classroom space like where where's the sp- when they talk about it in the language of corporate america how does a college of architecture like yeah c- not get the student i mean they talk about the students as customers you know like how do we <laughs> grapple with that issue we were already grappling with that yeah. issue and now the university has been turned into a question of the corporate model you know I think yeah. it's, it's just gonna be more difficult yeah i'm sorry yeah
1: you're looking at your watch no i i'm I, am, i'm i'm always or? looking at my watch so it's oh. my job as the host it's not any specific like <laughs> this is not a social cue yeah. it's it's a strictly we it's a it? no we, we've got we've got 10 minutes left uh yeah i mean I, I think this question of the political is really interesting and i guess one of one of the things that i've sort of uh, I'm, I'm sort of fond of saying is like of course architecture is always political Ev- everything is always political the the hotel workers on strike was like political right like uh but but i I'm always I'm always uh, wanting us to be very uh make clear distinctions in which I think the categorizations are an an, an uneasy but necessary tool to help us sort of like m- divide what is Political in, in nature, which is everything, versus what is actually doing politics, right? Because I think like that, that—that for me is is the kind of new frontier that 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 i hope for for me personally that that schools can start to kind of address and it means being sort of critical about about the everything but but really being honest with ourselves about you know what what is changing the power relationships right like cuz everything is a power relationship but i think um um you know Understanding those things is, is important, but I think you, you actually – the only way that you kind of understand them is by kind of getting, getting your hands dirty and, and sort of – really like like built building movements <laughs> and and I, and so it, it's kind of an extra architectural issue in a, in a lot of respects um be, because I, but because it has to do with things like so sort of student loans and the structure of the profession and 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 people's ambitions and their ability to realize those ambitions um but but you know at, at some point it's 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 got to be about more than just having the kind of critical disposition and ability um because if if that's never kind of op- if 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 we don't ha- like have the ability to kind of like uh, uh, know where the road leads, then like how will we ever know to walk there? I guess is, it, is, is maybe if, if I more to, to talk about yeah. it like really,
3: I don't know even a little bit pedantically. I I would think, you know, I would hope to teach my students to think analytically about the yeah. world. Uh, we talk about critical thinking, you know, sure. you hear that everywhere, not even, not just in architecture. But I think it's actually analytical thinking that matters, mm. which is how do I peel apart all these layers? How do they interact, whether they be people or rule sets or yeah. whatever they may be? And I, th- I think that in architectural education, I can only speak to that, uh, um, what I see... Actually I have a friend that runs a preschool and I think we often have similar conversations mm. uh, about how you know in public education they would call it scaffolding where you uh, you build something in connection to the student they understand it from a kind of lived experience then you build on top of that but you kind of go back and it's like how do you build to a complex set of questions and I think sometimes what happens and I've spent most of my teaching in foundation first year second year and one of the uh, um, difficulties is that you, you, you have to kind of push some things aside and just look uh, at mm. a, a, a s- simple set of interactions, whether they be formal or programmatic or whatever they might be. And, but I think the, the difference is, do you suggest that somehow you've left everything on the table and life is actually this simple? <laughs> or do you say, look, we're focusing on this aspect or this set yeah. of interactions because we want to, you know, hone them or understand them better. But it doesn't mean to say that the question of, you know, these other things on the table don't exist. And I think, particularly in foundation that that's often a real friction, you know, because I think that there's it's so seductive to want to just say the rest of that doesn't exist. Let's just deal with the nine square, you know, (laughs) or the
4: cube or (laughs) whatever it may be. Or the
1: flip side, let's just deal with the politics part of it. Exactly, exactly. And not not the kind of disciplinary, like, you know, buildings have gravity, uh, right? So the really
3: difficult part as an educator is, like, how do you make something both – you know, focused and refined and not necessarily simple, but where you you really can be explicit about the layers that you're peeling apart. Mm. And at the same time, connect it to this broader set of yeah. questions that maybe you don't, you know, directly address
1: until next year. Yeah. So I can't help but feel like we've we've gone full circle here because I feel like the thing that informs that sort of uh, that that being that explicit kind of this is these are the layers. This is the kind of framework is having that kind of um, that a project, right? A, a kind of project that's bigger than any sort of one student or one studio um, that can kind of like in, inform that. So everyone's kind of speaking a common language. So um uh, which which I think is interesting. I we we only have 5 minutes. So uh, I think in these conversations it's also like we you know it's like big weighty issues and we kind of talk about things in like sort of very very abstract ways. Um, and and uh, yeah, I don't know which I guess is just conversations with architects a lot of the time. <laughs> but but I'm I'm curious like uh, uh like if if you guys uh, Ellen, you, you 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 put us on a kind of optimistic note earlier, but maybe we can like end end on like a, a very optimistic sort of sort of note. Like, w- what is it that's got you like really excited in the places where you're teaching, or like about architectural education? Or maybe it's just like a student studio project that you're looking at right now. Like, you know, I don't know. Like, what's what's getting you, what's getting your blood pumping uh, the, these days? So we can we can end on a kind of like high note. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's nothing. It's Correct. been a kind of horrible month. Like uh, it's, you know, yeah. I feel like I'm teaching wow. in 1968. You know, like uh, um, so 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 maybe maybe it's not, <laughs> and maybe this I, yeah. Anyway, I,
3: I had a really lovely conversation with a student yesterday, and in a midterm review where he his undergraduate degrees in biology, and the simple description of the project is that they had to make a kind of relief model investigating the historical layers of a city. Yeah. And he came, and I, I, I des- described the city as an, as an organism, use it as an, an analogous situation. And he came in with this whole, like, idea about cancer and the stages <laughs> of cancer and how, you know, he was looking at Mexico City and the way it had started is this kind of, you know... Mm-hmm. Tiny kernel that Cortez, of course, said, well, this amazing city, we must destroy it. Um, you know, simple, <laughs> simple version. Anyway, I just loved that he, I didn't ask him to, but I loved the way he was able to use the language of his previous discipline really explicitly as a, a, an analogy for his current one, and yet he couldn't see it as, like, how do I shift some of these little bits of pieces yeah. of semantic discussion? But we tried to grow that conversation into this, like, how could it be more? Yeah. And it was just an exciting moment. It was saying, you know, yeah. it's, maybe that's too small, too fine a point for what you asked. But I enjoyed that someone could see how architecture isn't this, like, whole separate thing, but totally. actually is just a, you know, can grow out of their, their a language they already had. Yeah. So yeah. Maybe only biologists can do that. <laughs> <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm currently teaching, um, co-team co, teaching with six other professors. Uh, we're teaching first-year undergrads, so all these kids are 18, 17 years old, 18 years old, and they, most for the most part, have had no architecture um, training to this point. And it's really amazing. We're, you know, a month in, and they're having their midterm on Tuesday, and it's it's incredible how far they've come in just a short amount of time, and how they're starting to think and talk uh, within the discipline of architecture. And um, it's it's exciting, actually. It's really it's kind of corny, but it's really exciting to see uh, those little mini breakthroughs every day, yeah. And to see uh, them grow into being like emerging architects after only a month,
4: yeah.
2: Oh, I'm just thinking about Kavanaugh right now. So okay. Yeah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah.
1: No, it's <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, how could you not, uh, you know, in in this moment? Yeah. And you know, it, it's actually you know, I don't, I don't know. I, we, we've we're we're almost at the time for this segment, but it, it it has been. I think that's a whole other interesting conversation to have is how to how to navigate a classroom environment when all that stuff is going on, especially at SAC when we teach eight-hour days. And so seven-hour days. And, and
2: and the marches are outside mm, the window. Yeah. yeah.
1: We, we, we ended class
4: early. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it's interesting.
3: On yeah. uh, Friday, my students were talking more about the Van Dyke situation yeah. than Kavanaugh. Yeah. And I mean, at least they were talking about something outside of our yeah. building. But I thought that was interesting. Yeah. You know, the, and maybe it's just the group I was with, but yeah.
1: Well, uh, on that note i mean i and, uh, we we do have to end the segment um and, and go to a break um but uh, yeah I, I don't know Archit- architecture uh, it, it gives and it takes and and, and teaching always seems to give <laughs> so uh that I, I stumbled into that aphorism uh <laughs> for what it is um but i i really appreciate y'all's generosity in coming on the show and 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 your generosity with your your thoughts here um Uh, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. These are all complicated questions. And like, I'm always grateful for, for my optimistic note to have a sort of community in Chicago where we can kind of think through these things, uh, together. It feels, that feels very special and and unique to this city. So on on that note, thanks. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks to Lumpen and the
2: guys who, and the people who run it. Yeah. You guys do amazing work.
1: Welcome back to Buildings on Air, um, and you know y- if you're not listening to this show live, I say it every time you're missing producer Jamie's excellent, excellent music choices. When he shows up on time. When he shows up. On time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that that was a good music choice. Thank uh, you. I
6: just I felt that after Brett Kavanaugh, we needed something a little somber, yeah. and I thought it commented nicely on what we were talking about or what you guys were talking about yeah. while I was racing around like a bad
1: man. Yes, yes, uh, and and now now we're in the studio uh, with with David Merriman. Um, who, who published? Who wrote this? This amazing report on TIFs and um, TIF districts are tax increment financing districts. Um, we, we've talked about TIFF on the show before, I was joking with David during the break, <laughs> we talk about them on the show in this kind of architect-y way where we kind of know them, we know enough about the built environment and kind of urbanism to be k- sort of critical in some ways, uh, but, but we're not policy experts, and so I'm really happy to have you here as a kind of policy expert. Uh, as You said you've been thinking about these things for 30 years, and, and this report even changed your mind, so I'm, I'm curious to hear about that. Um, Maybe you can can give us the introduction, uh, the background of you, the background of the report, and and you can start by kind of telling us for for for, the, for our architecture audience uh, what are
0: TIF districts. <laughs> sure, uh, glad to do that. Yeah, and so uh, I'm I'm actually an economist, although I teach now in a department of public administration at the University of Illinois, um, and. Uh, You know, I've been interested in urban economic development, what governments can do to promote economic development, what's a good way to promote economic development, and sort of how local governments function, that kind of thing. Um, I I work with a group uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts called the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, and it was actually about five years ago. They they knew that I'd published a bunch of papers on uh, tax increment finance, and so they asked me to write sort of a grand general thing aimed at kind of legislators, general people, not really technical people Mm. um, to kind of, you know, what's the view of TIF. And um, that, that was, it was really a challenging challenge. It took a long time to do it, um, but um, it's finally come out. So I guess what is tax increment financing? So the, the interesting thing about it is it's a, it's a, A way of taking some property tax revenue and putting it in a special pot. And that special pot can only be used for development in that particular geographic area. And it's usually quite a small area. And I think one thing um, that's interesting about it, it's it's based on the the growth in the property value of that geographic area. So – it's kind of um, – in some ways, it can be very invisible. Mm. You know, the the overlying governments, the other governments, the school districts, the municipality, they get the same revenue that they got in the past except that it doesn't grow because there's no – any growth in the property values. Mm. The money goes into this new special pot.
1: Oh, uh, interesting. Right. So that, that makes sense. So, yeah, so, so the, the, <laughs> yeah that, I've never thought about that very basic fact of TIF, that, that the rest of the kind of tax base stays the same, even though ostensibly uh, uh, the TIF district um, is, is, is growing that kind of community in, in all sorts of other ways that would presumably put increasing demands on schools and, and the other f- institutions that are being financed with regular, regular old property taxes.
0: Right. And so, of course, this is a really big deal in Chicago and Cook County. I think uh, David Orr, the Cook County clerk, came out with the report. Uh, a few months ago, and I think he said it's something like a third of the property tax revenue in the city of Chicago, and it's, it's you know an, an enormous number, which I won't quote because I'll forget. I think, about I think
1: it was like four hundred million or something, though. Yeah, right? that, that's like for a, the city, for and, the and the county city, yeah. was ah. like
0: six hundred million or something. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember the exact. <laughs> but just number.
1: to give everyone an order of magnitude, uh, it, huge.
0: <laughs> it, it's a lot of money, right? <laughs> and yeah. it's like. Um, you know, so we ought to be like, so why are we taking this money? There has to be a really good justification for taking this amount of money and moving it off into this special pot. Right. Right. And, um, you know, I'm not sure we all always think about it that way in a kind of the broad way. And, yeah. I, and I should say, Chicago, I mean, one of the reasons that this has been a big issue for me is because I, I live in Chicago. And Chicago makes the most use of TIFF of, of almost anybody around the country. St. Louis also yeah. makes a lot of lake, I, I have I have the quote
1: <laughs> pulled out. It's says, uh, Chicago used TIF more than any big city in the United States. As shown in Table 5 of the report, Chicago had as many TIF districts, 149, as the other nine largest U.S. cities combined uh <laughs> yeah oh and here is the number in in 2015 alone chicago collected chicago tifs collected 461 million in property tax revenues uh-huh. yeah which would have otherwise gone towards the general bucket of property tax collected right right yeah.
0: right so i mean you know th- there there's some debate i mean tif advocates will say well no 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 that we wouldn't have gotten that development without the tif districts mm. and so the i mean the real question for Sort of in the scholarly work is to try and figure out how much of that is true, how much of this would have happened anyway, yeah. right? And and I think you know, I spent a lot of time looking at everything that kind of you know had been written about Tiff in a really scientific way, everything yeah. that I could find. And the the you know there's some debate in the literature, but the sort of the most recent studies and the best studies sort of suggest that. You know, most of the stuff would have happened anyway, in one right. way or another. So, and and
1: the stuff being sort of private, private development that gets handed a kind of check from the the TIF bucket, is, well, that, is that how that works? I, I mean, well,
0: that one of the things is that it's very, very uh, one of the big themes of yeah. my report is that there's a lack of transparency a lot of times hmm. about how that money is spent exactly. So, some money does more or less get handed to private developers. Some of the money goes to things that are much perhaps benign, like, oh, clearing the land or dealing with environmental hazards mm. or that kind of thing. Some of the money even goes into parks or, or even schools. Yeah.
1: I, bu- I believe our beautiful sidewalks in front of the studio are uh, paid for with with TIF dollars, which which seems uh, it's it's a beautiful sidewalk. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. right. So, so <laughs> yeah. one of one the things
0: is, you know, and, and actually Chicago is is been there's been a, a huge debate in Chicago about this. Of course, yeah. Chicago actually pretty good at releasing the lots of data about TIFs now uh-huh. compared to other big cities. But it's hard to put it all together. Yeah. Right. And and, um, you know, yeah. Uh, basically, it's it's going to take a lot of work to figure out exactly where that money is going, right. and it's different in different TIF districts.
1: Yeah, and that's because that's that's sort of you know my my curiosity, and I, and I have a certain kind of politic and approach that, that sort of always colors my view of these projects. And, you know, which would meaning like, you know, I look at the the sidewalk and the kind of public works projects and I'm like, great (laughs) like public Uh, investment in like, in like local neighborhood spaces, like cool. And then, you know, I see sort of like really uh, as an architect, I see like really crappy, like mixed use buildings Uh, that I know are going to be like. Garbage in fifty years uh, that that you know get a giant blank check from the city to kind of underwrite the the development to to stimulate development in a in a certain area, and so. Um, you know, we, we've got one on 35th and Halstead here uh-huh. in the neighborhood that's kind of an atrocious building and has like a lot of empty storefronts all the time. And like, you know, like there are parts of it that work and like, there's, the, I guess the apartments up there are kind of nice. Like, you know, so it's, it's kind of a mixed bag, but you're like, I don't know. Well, so,
0: uh, <laughs> so, so, I mean, I think one yeah. of the big things is like, so who should make those decisions? Right. right? And a lot of times the, the t- the decisions about TIF as I understand it in Chicago, the yeah. way they're made is, you know, the there's an alderman. And right. the, the alderman is going to come to the Department of Development, the, the, the city's Department of Development, which, of course, is controlled by the mayor. And generally that alderman didn't think up the idea in their own head, sure. right? They maybe have been approached by a, a corporation or a business that wants that. Or maybe they've been approached by the community. <laughs> but, you know, the, I guess the question is – what should be the public input on that? And also, from my point of view, you know, this the, the elected body that should make the decision is the city council. Yeah. Of course, we elect the mayor as well, but the the city council gets kind of one shot at it. So, <laughs> yeah, the, the, you know, the the department, of this, the alderman suggests that the Department of Development will kind of work with it and, and write up a proposal with the developer, and then the city council votes on it and says, yeah, up or down, and almost always up because, you know, the, each alderman wants...
1: Yeah, they don't They don't want to <laughs> get their, their, their proposal rejected the next time around when it's their turn, right? Right, and and because yeah. it's
0: not... I mean, also, I think because it's not... That money isn't directly competing yeah. with other uses because mm, it's future money. I see, yeah. So, you know, I think the city council kind of has a responsibility to say... Okay, if we're going to improve these things, then we ought to be looking at them on a regular basis. Or somebody ought, to, yeah. somebody objective, somebody outside the process, should be looking at these things on a regular basis. Yeah,
1: interesting. Yeah, and 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 so I'm I'm also curious too because these things do have that kind of like. I mean, it's there. They're, it's urban, right? I mean, they have a a geographic element to them, and, and in the city of Chicago, that of course means that there's uh, there's an in, an inequity aspect to, to sure. any kind of urban question that you have to kind of grapple with in in thinking about public policy. Um, and you know, I'm 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 originally from Atlanta, and yeah. it's it's very similar there too. And I, and I kind of remember getting obsessed with in, in Atlanta. They're called TADS, right? right? And 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 they have the Beltline Project, which is a huge, huge sort of massive implementation of of TIF on a kind of grand scale. And, you know, uh, and so I, I don't know and, and there you know they were kind of using that money there's an idea that they would use that money to help stabilize the 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 neighborhood um, so that the people who lived in the kind of south and west sides of the city right. uh, in Atlanta would, would be able to like you know benefit from this new development instead of being displaced by it right. and, and it was kind of too little too late by the time that all came around um, and I think you write in the report a kind of little case study about that right, opposition right. but like you know so so i'm, I'm curious what the in, in your kind of overview of this you know i i because I, I could see how, how how it's helped how tiffs have helped or hurt kind right. of urban inequity because i could see how they they could totally help right i mean as, right. in a
0: kind of as a kind of redistributive mechanism i mean i what i think is that a lot of times tiffs aren't the right tool if you have a, a really blighted neighborhood. Hmm. For TIFF to work, somebody has to have some hope that you're really, if you put some money in, you're really going to get an increase in property values because that's that's where the money comes mm. from. And you know, the the problem is, you know, you get things like the a lot of the Plyb- Clyburn Corridor, which is a you know a very kind of swanky area now, mm. yeah. right? That was formed by TIF money. It's relatively close to downtown. It's on the north side, and you know they put money into it. But it's very hard to believe that you wouldn't have had development there over time. Anyway, (laughs) right now, especially looking at it in retrospect. But you know there used to be a lot more. um, There used to be a lot more blight there. Yeah. Right. But it's still the location was such that it was going to grow. Yeah. So TIF works really well in that kind of neighborhood. Where you're sort of on the cusp of development, but that's that's not. Um, I mean, it works really well in the sense that it, it generates a lot of revenue, but yeah. maybe it doesn't work really well in the sense that maybe it wasn't needed. Right. The in the more blighted, the more really challenged areas. You know, if we talk about many areas on the west side of Chicago, yeah, TIF is probably not going to do that much. You need more. You need different tools. Maybe you need to go in there with you know. With money that you're putting in um up front right right and instead of instead of the future money <laughs> instead of the future money yeah. right right, right. No. so yeah. so I mean, I think we shouldn't you know unfortunately, I think tiff has been sold to some people as like the remedy for urban blight, yeah, and I think that's the exception rather than the rule where mm-hmm. it's going to work,
1: yeah, it's really yeah, it's because i i uh I there's a there's a kind of I forget exactly on the, it was on page 12 of the report, but but there was this kind of interesting note about uh, you know people think TIFs I forget exactly what what the phrase was, uh-huh. but it was sort of uh, basically talking about how you know TIFs are a way to kind of channel tax money to private developers uh-huh. and, and that there's a kind of role for that in, uh-huh. in, in promoting development but but that, but, but that it's not uh, an additional land value capture right. um, and that those are kind of two different things which is a kind of like technical distinction, but one that I realize is really important somehow. Uh, can you can you explain that? Well, so,
0: so let me say the, the yeah. idea of land value ta- capture is something I've learned a lot about, again, in the last couple of years. It's something that's used um, particularly in South America and in some other parts of the world, much less in the U.S. Hmm. Um, but the idea behind that is, you know, suppose that the public sector does comes in and does something that makes all landowners around it rich so the Uh you know the typical example is you build a new subway line right Uh and you know i I spent some time in tokyo and i've seen this like you know being close to a subway line man that (laughs) that's a great area to be right and you want to own land close to or close to an airport
4: right?
0: and the idea behind land value capture is okay well if the public sector creates all this wealth shouldn't they take some of the wealth back why why do the landowners get it <laughs>
1: right <laughs> and so in
0: in south america they've done some things like said okay well we're going to basically downzone everything so say they're going to build in a new subway line we're going to downzone everything to a you know a very low level and uh, we're going to put in this new subway line and then if you want to develop that you can buy to upzone it right uh, yeah. but when you buy to upzone it then the money goes into the public treasury right right and and helps support everybody yeah so that you know that's a that's a kind of an idea it's an idea that's much harder to sell frankly in the united states than in a lot of other countries right they yeah. do some of it in canada but very little has been done in the united states but tiff is is not that people sometimes think it's value capture but you're paying the the owner of land in a TIF or near a TIF pays exactly the same property taxes that they would have. There's no additional burden put on that person yeah. or that that plot of land, and so it, it shouldn't be confused. Right,
1: right. It's interesting, and, and so in that way, it's it's almost kind of literally a, a, a kind of subsidy for for private development.
0: Right. A lot of times, it is. It can be a subsidy for private development. So, so let me just tell you something that yeah. that you know, and this is the way in working on the report that my. My idea about TIF really changed. Is like, yeah. why would you want to use this mechanism to subsidize private development? We yeah. want we want. To ask, why do you ever want to subsidize private <laughs> development? But sure, yeah. but, right. But maybe <laughs> even if you do, yeah. why should you use a TIF? Why not just like be upfront? Um, and I think the reason is that potentially a TIF can get the incentives right, hmm. in the sense that. If you're a government and you say, "Well, we're going to give some private development to a developer," the problem is you don't know if they're going to do what they say they're mm. going to do, right? They promise you a beautiful building, and you know we're going to we're going to build this new restaurant. There's not going to be any alcohol, right? Right. And then you know, two weeks later, they're applying for the alcohol <laughs> license, right? <laughs> yeah. After you've given them the development or so or something, you know. Or this is you know. So you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. And um, the on, on the other hand if you're a developer and the government says, we want you to develop this area, you know, this is an area that's badly in need of capital. There's some vacant lots here or, or old buildings. We want you to develop it and we'll be supportive. We're going to do all the things you need to support it. Neither of those parties might trust each other, right. especially if they think there might be a change in, in um, leadership in either of those organizations. Yeah, And so TIF, is a way of like engendering some trust, mm. because the developer doesn't get any money unless there's an increase in land values, and the government doesn't have to put any money into the TIF unless the developer does something that makes land values increase. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> right right. So, right. <laughs> so that's where it can work, right. It can work to solve the problem of lack of trust
1: right and 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 because this being the, the the main way in which many sort of markets fail us on on a kind of micro level uh, is the the lack of long term thinking right yeah, right yeah right. interesting yeah so i i mean I, I think uh you also did a kind of meta meta study which which uh, uh looking at all of the studies of TIFF's effectiveness which i thought was was really interesting and and maybe is this like the first time that kind of things ever been done or yeah. one of the few times
0: <laughs> i mean you know there have been individual articles with sort of literature reviews and yeah. but but the, but i really tried to pull together everything that i could find and um You know, I I will say, you know, the basic conclusion of it is kind of what I told you before, is that the the, the older studies find, are more likely to find some benefit of TIF, although there's some mixed things. The newer studies tend to find that TIF really underperforms, and the newer studies are generally better because we've gotten better data, we've gotten GIS, we've gotten all this kind of stuff, we've gotten better methodology, and it's, like I said, I've been writing on almost 30 years, so like... The newer guys, it's yeah. pretty intimidating, but the young guys are really, really good, right? <laughs> <laughs> they, they do a really good job yeah. figuring out how to, how to get this data together. Um, so, so that's the, the main thing. I, I guess the thing that I feel like what we as a, as a profession have, that, that is the, the analyst as a profession, have really not done as well as we might have is talk about what are the conditions. Some TIF districts do well right others don't and we can sort of say the average effect is not very good but we don't really understand what yet yeah. why some work better than others yeah
1: interesting well, we've only got a couple minutes left, so maybe uh, we can use those couple minutes to because I, I, that is a super interesting question, I think, right, right. and I'm really curious to see uh, may, maybe the subject for the next study. I don't right, know. Right. I think uh, <laughs> somebody should do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm I'm <laughs> sure uh, that you're on the right show. I'm sure someone, <laughs> someone, some enterprising buildings on our listener will will, will uh, certainly want to take up that challenge. Um, but maybe maybe you can tell us where to find the report. It's it's really I got to say it's really well-written. It, 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 it kind of uh, fills an ambition that, that this show has, which is to, to talk about, to get in the weeds but make it accessible we don't always hit that mark on, on this <laughs> show, but but this report is it does a really good job. Uh, it's it's also just long enough uh, to kind of tell you everything that you need to know, but not too long to you know really m- make you want to m- make you want to weep. <laughs> with uh, but
0: it, it, so so I, I can't recommend it enough.
1: And you can f- you can find it online, right? On right. The- it's
0: at, at the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. If you just Google that, you'll get it. But you can also get it at www.lincolninst.edu, um, and you'll you'll find it uh, there online along with a lot of their other really good materials. And uh, also, if you have questions or comments, I'm really happy to hear from you. Awesome. Well, this has been a, an invaluable contribution.
1: Um, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time to come visit us in the studio. Well, here. thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, David. Welcome back to Buildings on Air, uh, and this is our mailbag segment. The, our, our 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 sole regular segment where we answer your listener questions about buildings, um, and our regular mailbag correspondents And Louie and Craig Reschke could not be here this month, so we have uh, uh, ringers in the studio. They're gallivanting around what Serbia or something like that. They're <laughs> I, on a pontoon yeah, boat. I, you know, I, I can't keep track. Uh, they're 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 movers and shakers. You know, um, I think technically they're actually in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah that seems more. Yeah, right. I that's I Wisconsin. Think.
6: I think they were hoping to go to Arizona, have, a, have <laughs> a day in the sun. But I think they settled in Wisconsin instead. Mars Cheese Castle. <laughs> uh,
1: Cheese Castle sounds like a great way to spend a weekend, uh, especially yeah. a rainy weekend such as this. Yeah. Yeah, but but our, but our ringers, this is your second time acting as mailbag ringers. Anne and Craig, better watch out. Uh, Nick Checky, Emily Hanley, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having us, Kiefer. Yeah. Hey guys. Yeah. Um, so neighbors too. Neighborinos. Na- neighbors neighbors uh, yeah uh, one of one of the several uh, ar- architecture Bridgeport architecture power couples. Right, right. There's uh, at least that are in five the neighborhood. There yeah, there yeah, are yeah. it's like it's kind of shocking like yeah. you, you joke but it's it's you know true. Um I don't know what's in the water here. Probably just the nothing cheap good. Vit- it- Lead. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the water test results? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is, it bubbles. Yeah, so. right. <laughs> um, well, uh, anyway. Uh, uh, Let's let's jump right into the questions. Um, unless do you guys want to intro yourselves, uh, maybe like a, a little bit, it'd be good. Just so oh. just so people know that you're not you're experts here and in, in qualified oh. to answer questions.
7: Yeah, a little get to know you here <laughs> yeah. with our listeners. Yes, yeah. Uh, I'm Emily. I work as an architect here in town, and I like long walks on the beach. <laughs>
8: Uh, Nick, a Bridgeport resident, architect for four years here in Chicago. Yeah. And I think my favorite color is. Uh We'll go with green today. Nice. All yeah. right, the classic
1: icebreaker questions. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's let's go with a question from uh, sometimes building on air producer uh, uh, DJ Wu, uh, who who asks a really good question and and sends in a question every month. Uh, God lover. her. Uh, what is the purpose of those cotton wicks that stick out from the first floor of apartment buildings? usually right above a basement window. The ones I see in Hyde Park are usually on older brick three- to four-story courtyard apartments.
8: That's a great question, and it can be hard to identify those strange building elements. Yeah. Um, I assume what what DJ Wu is talking about is um, a little bit of cotton filler that's put in weep holes behind um, sort of masonry facades. Typically, there's a little bit of an air cavity behind the, the brick or the stone, Especially on older limestone buildings. Yeah. Um, and that's just sort of keeping the, the hole clear of other debris and allowing water to weep to the outside. Yeah like a little straw <laughs> yeah so keep it's a keeping it yeah
1: it's, a yeah, it's, a it's a literally, it's a literally a yeah. 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 yeah so uh good question like super super observant yeah because uh i think that's one of the things that like got me really interested in like brick as a material <laughs> like like is walking around and seeing like what 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 is that thing in that building it's
8: super weird and, yeah yeah. And it's, yeah it's hard to think of a better american city for all the the brick and stone detailing, yeah, uh, of like early American architecture.
1: Yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot about this because, because you know, like about the the fact that we can't build sort of solid brick walls. I think we talk about a mailbag a lot. Um, because they're they're sort of like weird porous elements so that like that idea of like having an air cavity there to, to sort of stop. Um, I, I've been doing some research and I realized that that they, they've been doing that for a really long time in buildings that were deemed to be like moisture sensitive like old like, like medieval libraries have a, a, a ca- have a cavity wall construction um, which I thought was super interesting because I always kind of associated that with like you know modern brick veneer sort of um, or were stone cladding sort of uh, uh, things, but it was they they used a thing called a rat trap bond, which was a, a type of brick bonding that I had never heard of um, yeah because no. it, it makes a, a cavity for rats to get trapped in, yeah. which is vile. That's it is.
7: It is. It's vile. <laughs> it's, it's just, just what every homeowner <laughs> wants. Trap, trap rats. Yeah, right. <laughs>
1: if, if
6: you guys happen to be in Bridgeport, by the way, and you don't know what Kiefer is talking about or what Julie's talking about, if, you, if you're to I me mean, in the neighborhood, walk down Bonfield Street, at Bonfield and Lyman, there is a new construction on the corner there that has wicks in it. They, mm. they put them in when they re yeah. faced it. So if you're listening to this and you feel like running out to Bonfield and Lyman, there's a nice park you can hang out in and – Catch some rain uh, today <laughs> and and check it out. Yeah,
1: all right. Well, next next question. Um, okay, uh, if if I place scotch tape on the edges of my heat vent that's on the ground, will it catch on fire? my vent on the floor has ants coming out of it because the carpet around it is lifting. So if I put tape over where the vent and the carpet meet to fix the carpet lifting, um, I'm worried that that will uh, catch on fire because we use the heater during this time of year. Will the tape catch on fire?
7: Wow,
4: That's so many <laughs> layers to this question. It seems like
1: the wrong question to yeah. be asking.
6: That seems absolutely like the wrong question to be asking, yes.
7: So let's break it down. I think you've got a couple questions here. One, how do I deal with ants? <laughs> right. I was asked you to go get some of the ant traps. They're yeah. super inexpensive. They work great. That's step one. Mm-hmm. Step two, the next question seems to be about carpet lifting. Um, there's a couple ways to deal with that. One of the easiest ways is to go get some double-sided uh, carpet tape. It's super inexpensive, works great. That's a much better way to hold down your carpet rather than going with a scotch taper above the carpet-type solution. <laughs> you want to hold the carpet down from the underside, yeah. if at all possible. Um, both of these are you know, super inexpensive fixes if you're a renter. Um, yeah, it's like less than five bucks. Yeah, and this is why you're the
6: expert. This is why you're the ringer here. Yeah. This, this <laughs> incredible honing in on the, the core parts <laughs> of this
7: question. And then we'll answer the third question here, which is: Will the scotch tape light on fire? No, yeah. probably yeah. not. It's just not probably the best
6: option here. Yeah, right. Uh, I, scotch tape shouldn't actually be super flammable.
1: No, I don't. Th- I wouldn't think so. But It'd I melt. I, it would. I, I would imagine that uh, if anything, it'll just make this the tape kind of harden not not very adhesive. Yeah.
6: For yeah
7: I think the I bigger know. problem with the scotch tape is scotch tape actually does pretty awful things to paint over mm. long term. Um, you'll see in a lot of homes, particularly ones that have been um, rental properties for a long time, people use scotch tape on walls or on doors, woodwork. It has a way of kind of permanently bonding, then getting hard. And then it, you know, since it's bonded with that top layer of paint or lacquer, it tends to pull that off of whatever surface it was supposed to be on. So when you do take that tape off, you're actually taking all of the layers of paint or lacquer off with it. Um, yeah. So not the best option. Yeah.
1: Great okay. Question asked and different, more salient question answered. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's, here's another question. Uh, would the world be a better place if DIY was banned? What? Like oh. DIY home improvements.
6: Oh, I think we're talking about DIY spaces, like oh no, where I can yeah. I saw J- you were <laughs> about <laughs> we're to saying, go to war, uh, Jamie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I hope not, because I'm playing a gig
6: on Friday, man. <laughs>
8: Ooh, I dodged that bullet. Um, that's a tough question, though. Uh, on the balance, um, probably much more bad DIY stuff than good. Yeah, um, but you know, I think there's there's something more to it. There's like an enjoyment that comes out of working on your own own space. Yeah. Um, and as, as much as uh, highfalutin architects—not the ones that live in Bridgeport, no—the no. highfalutin <laughs> ones—might look down their nose on on like people's own adaptations of their space. I think it's really fascinating, yeah, uh, and interesting, and like an essential part of of you know how everybody makes the city the city and their own spaces their own. Yeah, totally.
7: Yeah, and there's a long history of make do in <laughs> terms of. Yeah. Even in kind of, if we're going to get highfalutin here, like scholarly <laughs> pursuits, there's a long history of making do and what that means in terms of larger art movements, architecture, yeah. and how we live in spaces. So I think the idea that, you know, no one's going to think for themselves and do things <laughs> is unrealistic. But yeah. I think the idea that... um Maybe we should be more cognizant about what we try to undertake, yeah. and more thoughtful about it. Might might be nice.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'm always like I'm always uh, uh, trying to figure out, and I know I know this is uh, Anne An- An and Craig are still sort of with us in spirit because they, they had that wonderful sort of research project about um, the office of the public architect. Yeah. You know, which mm-hmm. which which uh, which strikes me as a kind of like altogether like third third model to like you know DIY everything. Um, v- versus like, you know, we need, we need an expert here, uh, at all times, which is like having, having like a uh, publicly available and supported, like expert support, like, you know, uh, cause th- that's, how, I think that's how anyone learns how to do anything is by having like someone, someone teach them. It would be like, it would be like amazing if there was like a, uh, you know, a carpenter, like employed by the city to like be, be on a hotline to be like yes like let me walk you through how to do this thing or like oh my god guy like no you're not ready for this like you need to hire someone well
6: the, there are people actually like if you if you do call the building department yeah. I know plumbing they're not necessarily going to walk you through it but they will actually tell you what you're supposed to do and yeah give you actual advice it, it just depends whether you find those people or not but you, you know we do have maker labs now that are opening up all over the place right. which, with tools and you know i'm thinking of more stem pursuits but you know 3d printers there are places actually uh i think lucy parsons is bandsaws i mean they mm. they actually want you to come in and learn shop and and do this stuff um that's not necessarily an advertisement put scotch tape on your carpet as a <laughs> diy fix but i mean um i actually have the exact opposite i think that if if people actually knew more about tools and machine work and working with their hands, the world would be a better place because yeah. you'd have more investment in your own space. It always depresses me when I meet people that have no freaking clue how to use a power drill or, or, you know, how to use a saw. Those are those are essential skills. Like I'm, I'm deeply embarrassed. I don't know how to work on my own car. That has like been my Rubicon that I've never crossed. <laughs> and um, but you know, I know how to do plumbing. I can. I've done a lot of basic homework. I don't do electricity because that's something that i think a, a trained professional probably should do <laughs> uh you know that's kind of <laughs> deadly but you know I, I honestly i really do feel that if more people learn how to do that stuff whether they did it seriously or not that's not the point but knowing how to do that stuff is empowering and it it, it makes you feel more in tune with your own environment and the built environment i, th- yeah. I feel very strongly about that
1: yeah totally and that yeah there's like i think we we brought it up on the show before but there's the the I think he was Austrian or German, but there's a, a weirdo weirdo architect, an outsider architect, because uh, uh, such a thing does exist, which is cool, uh, named Hundervasser. Uh, do you guys know him? Oh, this yeah. guy? Yeah. You yeah. <laughs> have, yeah. Uh, 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 like author of such wonderful quotes as a straight line, as a godless line. <laughs> but, but he, he also wrote this thing called the moldest manifesto, which I think has come up in, in the mailbag before. That's all about how uh, we, we should totally dispense with architects and uh, people will learn their own lessons, maybe the hard way, but that's okay because buildings usually creak before they fall down. So not that many people will get hurt and the world will al- ultimately be a better place when with everyone kind of making their own dwellings. So he's Scandinavian, right? Yeah, that's uh, a very, Scandinavian <laughs> point of view. So, yeah. yeah it's it's the ex- the extreme thing, but yeah, I, I'm I'm generally a f- fan of of these kind of community initiatives where people people have a kind of safety network to to be able to like D- DIY. Yeah. Maybe not do it yourself, but like do it yourself with with others. With yeah. others. With your neighbor's help. <laughs> <self. laughs> DIY. Oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. It sounds like a, a swingers a- club advertisement. <laughs> <for his laughs> it takes a village. Yeah. Um, all right. We have, a, we have another question um, from, uh, uh, from Ryland Auburn, another uh, uh, Buildings on Air mailbag question asking Stalwart, uh, which, which we're uh, uh, super grateful for. Uh, and and he, he says, this is a big one. I recently removed a floor to ceiling mirror that was mounted to the wall of my 1950s era apartment. The mirror was attached with screws at the top and bottom, but also had baseball-sized patches of black mastic, tar-like globs holding the mirror to the wall. My concern is that this black mastic contains asbestos. I am reasonably confident the mirror is not original to the building and was likely installed in the past 20 to 30 years. Should I be concerned about asbestos? Also, how do I remove the damn stuff from the wall if it is not asbestos? It is stuck on like a glob of black tar. Uh, The wall surface underneath is plaster. Uh, and then there's there's some follow up questions about what to do if if
8: it, it all goes awry, as if it was scotch tape pulled from the wall. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think yeah. we should uh, thank Ryland for his devoted listenership. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We need more uh, yeah. of you. Yeah. Yes, and and generally, I think with with asbestos and a lot of hazardous materials, there's not much concern um, if they're not too old. So um, you may know as well, Kiefer, mm. but 1964, I think, was the uh, the big environmental act um, yeah. that was passed that outlawed asbestos. Yeah. And so it, it persisted, I think, in products um, that maybe were already around or on the shelf for a few years after that. But if something was installed after maybe 1970, there shouldn't be a lot of concern that it contains asbestos. Yeah. Right.
7: Yeah. And if you are worried, there's a couple things to consider that asbestos in, you know, when it's not airborne is fine. So if you don't know and you want to go do some research, you can leave it alone. It's fine if it's mastic on the wall or something else. As long as it's not airborne, it's not going to hurt you. Yeah. So, you know, it's always a good moment to pause, go do a little research, Google a bit. Yeah. You know, if you're really concerned, <laughs> call in an expert. But, you know, if you do encounter one of those things, yeah. It's okay to walk away slowly. Yeah, Yeah.
1: right. A a classic example of a DIY O project. (laughs) Buildings on Air is happy to be your O. Right. I would say
6: knowing something about mastic and materials, it's probably – I would be very confident. I I, I agree with Nick. This probably doesn't have asbestos in it. I think a bigger concern is how – what is the surface of the wall that you're trying to remove it from? Yeah. Because there's a practical thing here. If it is wallboard, candidly, you're better cutting the wallboard out and replacing it. Yeah. Yes. If it's on wallboard. If it's not, if it's on plaster, it gives you some more options. You can probably use some commercial solvents that you can't use on wallboard because the plaster will hold up to that. But um, that would be. the follow-up question I would ask because you you really do need to know what the surface of the wall is like to give an appropriate removal for any kind of adhesive product.
1: We have the answer here. Oh, okay. The wall surface underneath is plaster that is original to the building and is likely covered with lead paint. Uh, Plaster repair will be the follow-up question. Is a drywall patch sufficient or am I stuck chiseling out the plaster and very carefully filling it back in with new plaster? Well, so
6: there's a couple things and I actually had to do this in, in my own house. I had 1917 horsehair hide lath and plaster until, of course, my house went up in a puff of smoke uh, and is now replaced with, with drywall. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are a couple of things you can do. First of all, plaster removal is extremely messy. Um, even taking out a section of plaster wall, you've got to remember that when you do this, um, there's going to be wood underneath it. It's going to be extremely dusty. Uh, you want to do as little as possible. I would recommend uh, a Sawzall, probably, cutting out the section in a straight line, and then remember that it is not going to match up to modern drywall sizes. Most um, one-hour firebreak drywall that you're going to purchase at a Home Depot or a Lowe's or some store like that um, is going to be noticeably thinner than the plaster layers, and the reason is is because the plaster was placed onto the lath, the, the wooden parts, and it protrudes out, and it can protrude out as much as you know an inch or two, depending mm. on who was doing the plastering, because it Plaster is a fluid material that you know requires skill that we, frankly, a lot of people don't have anymore, yeah. um, and so it's it tends to be uneven. So, if it's on plaster, again, I would probably recommend, and you know, this is again, if you're at all concerned about asbestos, because you, what you should be more concerned about is the plaster dust you're going to create. You want to seal off the room, you, if possible. You want to have ventilation and and vacuuming. I would recommend getting a big and renting a big industrial drywall vac. Um, Uh, dust vac and and having that on and then cutting as little as possible floor to ceiling because that'll make it the easiest for you to replace yeah you're probably then after you do that because you're gonna have to cut the lath out too you're gonna have to probably prop up on the two by 4s you you're gonna have to put in a new two by four or one by eight to attach your drywall to because remember you don't have like plaster goes on lath you're not gonna have anything back there so you're gonna have to have some kind of frame to put it on and then when you do that the, the final choice that you're going to have is you can probably do that with joint compound, but if you have any kind of, if it's, if it's a non-molding issue, like if you don't have molding on the ceiling or you don't have baseboard, you're going to have a gap there that you're going to have to cover up, and that's actually going to be a real pain in the butt. That is where you might want to choose some kind of treatment and molding to put up in there because it'll make your life a lot yeah. easier just from a, a pure DIY perspective. Yeah.
1: That's the profession. That's, that's, a, that's very thorough for a DIY job, Jim. Well, <laughs> it
6: is. And I mean, that's, that's the kind of project that is going to take you, I mean, candidly, that's, that's a lot of man hours. Yeah. It's, it's going to take you a couple of days because you're going to have dry times in there and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I speak from experience because I, I did demo a whole bunch of rooms that were all plaster and lath because we had some some damage when I first got the building. And I thought, you know, naively, so I'm, I'm hoping that I'm passing on. This is hard-won knowledge. I naively was like, oh, I can just take a sledgehammer to this, and this is going to be great. I'm going to yeah. have a lot of fun. It's it's not. It's, and you create a lot more debris than you think. Yeah. You're you're, you're going to fill up your dumpsters quite yeah. quickly. So. Plaster. Do as little as
1: possible. Yeah. I mean, plaster is really hard, and, and they usually do it in a couple coats. So there's usually like the brown coat, which is like really hard behind. So if it's just a kind of surface treatment, you might be able to maybe um, uh, just get off that top coat and kind of re skim the top layer. Depend, maybe. maybe but maybe. you might open up a can of worms.
6: I, I think that your best, and the other thing I would recommend is getting a very good masonry bit, um, a nice big one, so that you can. Drill in and then insert your saws all because otherwise sometimes when you're trying to punch with a with a gator saw or reciprocating saw, you can do more damage. Yeah. You really want to make that as, as tight and, and uh, sharp a cut as you possibly can because even though that's impossible, because remember your drywall is going to be very tightly cut and you don't want to have to go over with a lot of joint compound because that's where you get fail points. Yeah. That's probably more information than they wanted, but, but <laughs> having done now this, you know. I, yeah, I, you know. I'm going to
8: see if Jamie can come talk to the superintendent on my next job. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> Being the superintendent for a couple buildings <laughs> around here, I he probably can do that. Knowing, knowing that uh, the the molding problem that Jamie brought up and that the question asker is in a uh, Mies van der Rohe apartment, uh-huh. I think the oh. most pertinent thing here is what kind of molding would Mies prefer?
1: Oh, mm. Interesting.
6: Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Well, wait a minute. Is if it's a, is it a listed building? Can you make alterations to it without permits? Because I mean, I, I didn't Sorry, think of it. I didn't think that <laughs> he, he, he probably, if it's a listed building in California, would have to pull permits because that would be a significant
1: architectural change. Hmm. If you, I mean, I th- I think no. You're not. It's you, it's repair a place permit. If uh, if it's under yeah. a certain amount of square feet, even yeah. even on a job like that. The, but I think yeah.
6: The other thing you can do, and I don't necessarily <laughs> recommend this, but mastic dissolves with um, kerosene, gasoline, and some alcohol solvents. I, I think that if, on and I know Nick is looking like, uh, <laughs> but you, you can take a test with some, with some solvents and see if that will dissolve the mastic. I think you're gonna be left with big stains that candidly then you're gonna have another issue with yeah. because that stuff bleeds through any kind of sealer like a bin or a, a uh, what's
1: the other one? Kills. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. and th- those—that's another whole can of worms too. If um, it's a 1950s building. There's modernist building. There's probably tons of asbestos in it anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. You other know. places <laughs> than the masses. yeah, right. yeah, like which I which I love. I remember like one of when I was studying for my architect exam. They're like, we you found some asbestos in a building. Like, what do you do? And like one of the appropriate answers is cover it up. <laughs> like, it <is? laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I always like. That doesn't seem right, but I guess it is. Yeah. <laughs> <you, yeah>.
7: Encapsulate. <laughs> Encapsulate.
1: That's encapsulate, the technical yes. term. Damn.
7: Like, what are we going to do? We don't have money for anything. Right. We just, we'll put something over it.
1: Yeah. yeah. Encapsulate sounds very, very like technical. I know, right? It makes you feel better about it, don't you? It's not just, yeah. oh, I'm going
7: to cover it up and forget about it. It's, no, no. I've encapsulated it. Encapsulated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes.
1: I. Yeah. I, f- I frequently encapsulate my emotions. <laughs> 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 yeah. It's, the, it's not a, it's not a sort of Irish Catholic thing. It's a just encapsulating uh, yeah, states uh-huh. of mind, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, it seems so much better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next question uh, How do I decorate a guest room with a 2003 theme? Oh <laughs> man! There, there was some follow-up to this too about how the person uh, was really into uh, the. the I, I wish I could remember exactly what it was, but it was what? Wh- who would the? What singers would I put posters up of? Um, what singers would I have liked in 2003 if I liked Justin Timberlake today? And I was like, J- still Justin <laughs> Timberlake, <laughs> yeah. obviously. Yeah. It seems like this is actually the linchpin of the 2003 aesthetic right
7: (laughs) you know i'm trying to put myself back there and i'm like wait what haircut did justin timberlake have in 2003 because that says that says deep volumes here people yeah right like what what era was that
1: was that a ramen noodle justin timberlake Uh, i don't know
7: or was that when he still had the afro haircut Uh, thing do you remember no yeah that was bad <laughs> yeah.
6: Was it Marky Mark and his Funky Bunch then, too? <laughs> I, I, I just know, it's a feel like older.
7: 2003, I just remember like Smash Mouth being a big deal then. Oh, yeah. And like you can just sort of riff on that whole deal of like, you know, Volkswagen Beetle the, re- the redo <laughs> that I think oh, that was like yeah. new, didn't that come oh, out? Oh, you're right. Like, I think it did because they
6: just killed it. I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, but like 15 f- years, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sort yeah. of retro
8: contemporary, retro-contemporary.
7: Retro-contemporary, yeah. lots of candy agree, colors. Yeah. Yeah. Bad Star um,
6: Wars, The Phantom Menace, I think, was that. Um, oh, so, yeah. yeah. Get some real, the Bad Star Wars, what was that, Jar Jar Binks dolls? Yeah. But yeah. I, I
1: like the idea of, like, you know, instead of, like, making it look exactly like a kind of, like, 14 year olds, <laughs> or, like, my case, 13-year-old's, like, like room, uh, mm-hmm. I think you could probably, with, like, posters and everything, I like the idea of taking a slightly more sophisticated stance and, and taking those ingredients... And and abstracting them in particular ways. So like, you know, identifying which hairstyle Justin Timberlake had and faux finishing your wall to match, like taking it (laughs) as like a kind of like texture and like turning it into a wallpaper or like taking like the Anakin Skywalker rat tail and Mm -hmm. like putting it on a lampshade or something. I don't know, I'm just spitballing here. There's no bad ideas in brainstorming.
7: (laughs) You know, I I like your postmodernist approach to 2003 here. I think that might work. I think the other thing that always struck me about the early 2000s was like the obsession with plastic finishes, oh, like yeah. so much plastic. Yeah. Like remember it's when you could still get like all your USB cords in the clear plastic coating yeah. yes. that like we were really into seeing how things worked and you know also the like the mac computers yeah, the it's IMAX. when they had the yeah. imax with uh-huh. the like color back panels yeah and like uh-huh. things were really plasticky and really saturated in colors so right. there was like kind of this clear or frosted white aesthetic and then we had you know the some skittles. pretty yeah skittles so like i think you can rainbow palette this and just really hit it hard yeah
6: totally oh and wasn't rainbow bright around then too
7: Oh, she was having a resurgence, yeah. yeah.
4: yeah.
8: Rainbow Brain. It continues to this day. <laughs>
7: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Is the yeah. next question about My Little Pony? <laughs>
4: <laughs> I know, because we're right there. It's an <laughs> easy segue.
1: Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> there, there was, there was for the record, uh, s- s- someone seemed to have asked many of these questions. Uh, it seems like they had at least a, a handful of, of, uh, of sort of... Uh, guest rooms i see and they were looking but they were, so they asked what would a 1983 themed room be oh, I but see. They, they it was too, weird like. that they were all like ending in the 3s i don't know that seemed like a very specific recurring I maybe really a,
8: a themed airbnb house of Just all the worst decades. Oh, God, yes.
7: And you know what? There is a long history of hotels and, you know, homes with themed rooms. You know, it was a thing back in the day in your mansion that you would – each guest room would have its own theme, so you'd have, like, the blue room (laughs) and the rose room. And, you know, there was some old mansion that – Yeah, the creepy gato room. And so when you would stay in this house that, you know, you would get assigned the blue room. So. You know, this is just the modern take on, yeah. on it. Yeah, you know.
1: I yeah. I my my mom does a very good job of themed rooms. Now that I think about <laughs> it, but she <laughs> it very they're very they're very sophisticated. She's an interior designer, so oh, they're, oh. they're 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 legit. Uh, oh, I thought <laughs> you were going to talk about your childhood. No, room. no, no, yeah. No, they're nautical themed rooms. <laughs> you know? No, they're more like you know, like like the the themes are more like color palettes or oh, okay. or or like you know sh- like shabby chic or like victorian furniture like it's a it's a it's a, it's a little bit more uh, i don't know man i've got this image now of young keeper in my <laughs> mind i don't want to give it up yeah that's all right yeah. 10 year old keeper <laughs>
7: mom it's such a nice room yeah yeah not, not so
1: far off <laughs> just searching <laughs> for <laughs> duck decoys at yeah. <laughs> antique markets yeah. so yeah. tasteful <laughs> yeah. spent, spent a lot of time antique hunting yeah okay yeah yeah, which which I, I think is a is a good way to maybe you know not have to premeditate a room is to like mm. f- find like a a really good thing that gotcha. you would really like and and then abstract from there like take yeah. it from there yeah, yeah. so yeah.
7: just take Justin Timberlake take Cirque <laughs> 2003 and just expound yeah, yeah. just go to town <laughs> just go to town on it yeah
1: yeah uh, let's got one see. more we got one more yeah, one more, more. Uh, yeah. let's see. Anybody know why resin epoxy would heat up so much? I was in the process of making a uh, live-edge resin tabletop. I mixed one part epoxy with the other part hardener, mixed thoroughly. I then poured my base coat and laid the slabs of cedar on top. I left the room for about 30 minutes. When I came back, the resin was super hot, and it actually
8: warped the polypropylene sheets that it was sitting on.
7: Oh, man, take it away, Nick. (laughs)
8: Yeah. (laughs) Do, do all three of us have a story about architecture school resin fires? Because we, <laughs> we certainly do. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I've, I uh, have been my, – my students have to cast for things for mm-hmm. this class, and so there's been several casting accidents. Luckily,
8: this is not one that has happened. Uh, s- take it away. Fortunate, yes. yes. Uh, so <laughs> resin, uh, any sort of two-part plastic product, resin, um, even concrete, goes through an exothermic reaction. Um, which is is the process of the two chemicals combining and giving off heat. Um, And that's an integral part of of all these different mixtures setting. So when you're working with resin, especially really thick volumes, um, you can get like huge amounts of heat generated in the center of the mass. Uh, And and so much in fact that sometimes it'll, it'll never set or it becomes like a superheated liquid that can then break out of the mold and on contact with other surfaces, create like flash fires it's uh, <laughs> extremely cool to see happen, but very dangerous. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, furthermore, uh, resin gives off really nasty fumes. So yeah. if, you, if you've been casting it inside, um, you know, you may want to just give yourself some time outside or, or <laughs> I don't know. Might uh, not want to do that. Yeah. 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 do not do
6: that in the first place. Yeah.
7: yeah. Invest in a nice vape mask.
8: Yeah, um, and there there are like prac. If you're trying to get this live edge <laughs> table done, there are practical ways to cool your resin down. Um, special formulations that are are engineered to heat up uh, slower and cure over longer periods. You can also you know actually set it against like a cold object, yeah, or a, a massive stone thing to pull some of that heat out of it. Um, but you know your best bet, simplest solution is to make it a thinner casting. Yeah, interesting.
1: There you go. Yeah. Asked and answered. I I I also. I was going to go on a, a diatribe about my thoughts on resin pour tables. Go, go ahead. <laughs> oh, you yeah. have a couple minutes if you, if you want to. I, I don't do know it. if I can do it in a couple minutes, well, but, you know, but I know. But I, I mean, I, I really I've been thinking about this a lot about how those resin pour tables are like interesting and in the, in that they're the kind of image of craft more than they actually are about craft itself. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in that, you know, cause, cause, woodworking, I always think is, is having to deal with the kind of imperfections mm-hmm. of the material to create something sort of like perfect or like, or at least sure. flat, like as, as all tables are flat. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the essential character of a table. It's a raised flat surface. Um, right. but, but, but a resin pour table, I always strike, it strikes me as interesting because it's, it's putting the imperfections on display, which is its own kind of p- poetic, but, but it, it usually it, it it's not actually like like craft and in, in, in and you know you're 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 sort of because you're not having to wrestle with the imperfections. You're just sort of putting them on display and they become this kind of like image or texture. Um, and maybe it has more to do with the kind of like, the 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 Instagram categories that the resin pour table videos <laughs> like like oh, find I themselves in that. maybe that's more of my sort of beef with because uh, I've seen some beautiful resin pour tables of course I really but, thought
7: you were gonna go a different way with this like those resin cast tables where people put like. Bottle caps in there. Oh and yeah, records. Like yeah. I thought we were harking back to our DIY no. question. Uh, yeah. Here. Oh yeah. In, yeah, in yeah. that case,
1: I almost love it even more because it just <laughs> like goes like it's like you know fully embracing the kitsch and like the kind of like plasticky fakeness of it. Like it's kind of like that like yeah. there. And the wood ones seem to be more like you know oh like the I this is like like I'm making something like very like sort of like Ron Swanson like sort of thing. When it, when I feel like it's actually like the kind of opposite of that in particular ways. It's very it's it's actually very sort of dig- digital, even mm-hmm. even though it's like make in the sense that it's it's sort of like a rendered surface, even though it's sort of physical in in in, in place. Um. Anyway, something something I've been thinking. Spitballing here. Uh, Did you have a bad experience with that uh, presentation? <laughs> no, no. It sounds like I have got like a real like a vendetta here. Yeah, or it, yeah. You're getting a little heated. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've I've just been thinking a lot about it. He These just the, has deep feelings, okay? Hey, I do, I, you know. I do. This is like this is why I've I've never I've never done any drugs at all, and I and I don't need to because this is the kind of garbage that goes through my mind constantly mm-hmm. without any additional sort of chemical stimulation, except, except for cigarettes. <laughs> and so I quit. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah I oh, quit. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Oh, congrats. Yeah, uh-huh. uh,
6: that's good job. Good job. Mm-hmm. Well, what's coming up next month, buddy?
1: Uh, you know? I have no idea yet. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, Nick and Emily again. Unless Anne and Craig get it together, that's that's, that's my. True. <laughs> so oh, that's look true. out, look out, Anne and Craig. Um, yeah. But but no, uh, in, in all earnestness, thank you guys so much. You, you you're you're our, our go-to ringers, uh, and I appreciate I appreciate you guys making the trek to the studio um, and, and helping us answer these uh, important, salient questions.
7: Always happy to. Yeah.
8: Thanks for having Great. us.
1: Thanks. And thank you, producer Jamie. Yeah, you. yeah, well, next time I'll try to show up on time. Yeah. Yeah, try, try <laughs> Sorry, we, we, we're only a few minutes behind. It's and, uh, okay. Yeah, it we're making it good. up right now, too. Yes.
6: So. Thanks yeah. to the guys at Beer Download, who didn't show up today. Sorry. Right. <laughs> it's all good. Hey, with that, I should remind you, you're listening to WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM and Radio, because it is the top of the hour. Kiefer, I guess I'll, I'll see you next month, right? See you next month. Okay, guys. Take it away. <laughs>
2: This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air
0: is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay. And Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at... B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.